you probably <clears throat> get up in the morning about the same time every day or most days. If you agree with that, say yes. yes. Probably. Okay, you probably have a routine that you use in getting ready for the day. If you do, say yes. yes. You, you then get ready for your day. You probably, if you have to travel somewhere to the same place often, you probably travel just about the same way to get to work. If you do, say yes. yes. You do, right? So you end up going to there, and then you do whatever work it is that you do. You eat your lunch. Then you come home after that, and you probably have your evening meal about the same time, right? Probably about the same time. Your evening may change a little, but you probably have about the same time. And then you do whatever you do during the evening, and before very long, you have your bedtime routine, your brush, flush, all that you do with that. You're getting ready to go to bed, and then you go to bed. You probably have a favorite sleep position, don't you? You've got one that you like and that you, you tend to lean more into for your rest. And then you wake up in the morning and you get up about the same time, don't you, if you do say yes. yes. And you get ready about the same way if you do say yes. yes. You see, it's monotonous. It's just going on and on. Some of you saw a few years ago the movie called Groundhog. You remember the weatherman? He is on there living the same day for over 30 years. He tries all kinds of ways and things that he can do to try to break the cycle to see if he can get out of the boringness, the routine, the stuckness of his life. He tries all of these 50, 11 things and nothing seems to be able to help him break free from what is going on. In Ecclesiastes, we're here with Solomon. As Solomon is writing for us, he says things like this, chapter one, if your Bible's open, verse two, he says, everything is meaningless. That's depressing. I added that. Uh, verse 8, all things are wearisome. Verse 9, there is nothing new. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. Kevin Miller said he visited some of his friends who had a hamster. Any of you have a hamster? Some of you have a hamster? Not sure what you have cage rats at your house for, but anyway, they had this cage rat called a hamster. And he noticed something. The hamster has all kinds of wood chips where it can just burrow down and make a nice little nest. It has a water bottle here with fresh, nice water. It has food available to it that is great. And then it has toys. It has this hamster wheel. It's got a hamster wheel. Now it's designed for the hamster to get inside and to begin to paddle and to get his exercise, right? He can't get out of the hamster cage, so he can get his exercise doing that. But this hamster, they call Hammy, didn't like doing that. Instead, he liked to get up on top of the wheel. He would get up on top of the wheel, and in doing that, he would stretch himself out backwards, laying back, and pretty soon the momentum of the wheel would take him back, and he would hit his head on the ground, and he'd get up and he'd shake it off, and then instead of getting in the wheel or going over to some of his little nests in his burrow of stuff, he would get back up on top of the wheel. He would lay back out like this, and pretty soon he'd go back down, and he'd hit his coconut once again. Now, you know something that is pretty amazing? We look at that little hamster and we can, we can chuckle a little bit about that hamster, but the fact of the matter is we are a lot like that hamster if we're not careful, and we allow ourselves to do and to repeat and to do again the very things that society around us may do. As a matter of fact, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Dr. Hugh Moorhead, philosopher professor of Northeastern Illinois University, 
ran a study some time ago of 250 famous philosophers, scientists, writers, intellectuals, and he asked a simple question. His question was this, what is the meaning of life? Some offered guesses, but they acknowledged that was pretty much all they were. Some said just simply, I don't have a clue. Others said, when you figure out, would you let us know? It is possible to deduce from that, to conclude from that, that we have a real wisdom shortage in our nation today. Because as we live our life, if we're not careful, we live our life with no meaning. We live our life just going through the routine and just being bored out of our head. It's like as Solomon writes this book of Ecclesiastes, it's almost as if he's writing with no God present, with no God awareness. And he's writing about all of the life that he is experiencing. He states repeatedly that life is really not worth living. He leads to the logical conclusion that life without God is definitely not worth living. He uses a phrase that I'll talk about in a minute, but his phrase is, he looks at life under the sun. He looks at life around him. He looks at things happening in his world that he sees out here in his everyday of life. And so today we want to look at two parts of his discovery that help us put perspective into our life and see our life gain some purpose that is more noble than just a routine of boringness that we may go through or the pursuit of things that eventually decay. First, let's look at the vocabulary that he is looking at here to accomplish this writing. When you look at the vocabulary, you see that he is talking about things from a very earthly point of view. He is king. He's going to be king for 40 years. The first 20 years of his kingdom are going to be exceptional. The next 20 are going to be very much so not good. They're not really exceptional years. He is realizing that he is not here forever. He is writing this book of Ecclesiastes near the end of his life. He wrote Proverbs in the middle of his life. Most of the Proverbs we have in our Bible, he wrote. But he's writing this near the end of his life. He's kind of looking back over his life. He's an old man now. He's probably diseased. And as he writes about his life, he has several key words that he will use. He refers to God as Elohim. That's a beautiful descriptor of God if you're talking about the creation and the creative powers of God. But he never uses the phrase Jehovah. Elohim means God as creator, mighty God. But whenever you use Jehovah, you're talking about Savior, Redeemer, the one who comes alongside your sinful humanity and restores you to value before God. He does not use that. That's pretty significant because if you read back to when he was named by Nathan, the prophet, you read that his name given to him at birth was Jedidiah, not Solomon. And his name meant beloved of the Lord. He uses another word very often here. Pastor Dwight read it just a little bit ago, meaningless. Meaningless. Have you ever been bored? Have you ever been bored as a little kid? I was. I remember sitting there in the fifth grade of Madeline Perry's class. I drove by Eugene Field School by the room that I sat in when I had the thoughts that I'm telling you about now. Oh, my stars. I thought I cannot wait till I get out of fifth grade. I want out of this cage. I'm tired of fifth grade. 
And then I remember going into junior high and I was thinking, oh boy, junior high, can't wait till I get out of here. <laughs> junior high, and get into high school, can't wait till I get out of high school, yeah? Go off into ministry training, can't wait till I get done with that. Can't wait till we get married, can't wait till we have children. Can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. And then we do as Billy Graham said when he was an old man, he said, I can't believe how fast it all passed by. We hurry up to where? He uses the word meaningless. I want you to catch a picture of this. Do you like to blow bubbles? If you've ever blown bubbles, not gum, but if you ever blow bubbles like the little ones, I brought them for my grandkids the other day. I should have brought them up here to display, but we get soap on the floor. You blow, and you have this bubble, and it's floating out here, and it's floating along, and over here in the youth section, one of them pokes it, and it pops, and there's nothing left. What's left after you pop the bubble is what he is talking about when he used the word meaningless. He says everything is meaningless. You and I have to have a purpose in our life. You've got to have a reason to get up. It's got to be more than just paying the stinking bills. It's got to be more than just going through the motion and feeding some mouths. We dig the ditch so we can get the money to eat the food to go back and dig the ditch, someone has said. It's got to have more meaning. During World War II, the Allied armies bombed a sewage plant the significance of that was felt by those who were held as prisoners because they had been working that sewage company. And as they were working that sewage company, as it was bombed, they ended up having their roles changed. Those who were holding them hostage did something different. And what they did was, they said, now what you're going to do is you're going to hire, uh, you're going to take part of this building that's been bombed and you're going to pile it over here. And they took rubble from over here and made a big pile. The next day they got up and they moved the rubble back over where they had moved it from the day before. Then the next day they moved it back to where they had the day before that. And then the next day they moved it back over here. You're getting tired of me saying it. They were tired of living it. And they felt life was so meaningless. Life was so empty. Life was a bursted bubble. They felt so bad about it that some of them would throw themselves out in front of the guards, hoping that the guard would shoot them as if by suicide, asking to be taken out. And then he used the word gain. He uses it several times in the passage here. That's whatever is left over after you finish something. And then he talks about labor. The labor he's talking about here is labor that is you feel exhausted and you feel like there's no point in your work. Verse 3 talks about labor. It's like sitting at your computer and you type out this awesome report and you're feeling all good about it because you're coming to the end. And you're coming to the end and you remember you forgot to save it and all of a sudden it is lost. Oh, sheesh. That's what he's talking about when he talks about labor. There's a phrase that I referred to a minute ago that he is using 29 times here in this, in this uh, book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a phrase that talks about our perspective. Where, where are you looking in life? His phrase that he uses is under the sun. He's looking at all of the temporal, all of the things that have happened to him, all of the things he's experienced. He's looking at all of that kind of stuff. And he refers to this stuff as under the sun. Verse 13, he calls it under heaven. He started out pretty well, but he ended up allowing himself to drift away from a life of purpose. He started out with a God consciousness, but he comes over here and he allows himself at the end of his life to really have no God consciousness. He is living life in reverse. If he didn't have consciousness, he should have had consciousness by the end. Christine Kane 
speaker, author says it this way, all you have to do to drift apart from God is nothing. Everybody say nothing. Nothing. It's all you have to do. If you have a perspective that is only on this world around you, only on this life around you, you will be most miserable, Paul said. But if you have a perspective that takes you above all of the nothingness of life around us, you will see that there is something far greater and far more. It was a Sunday just like this a few years ago in this building. I had finished preaching. We had finished our service. I was exiting door four. Everybody was leaving the building. As I walked out door four, there was a young lady in her 20s sitting on the little brown bench we have there. And I said, hello, how are you? And she looked up at me and she said, okay, with a very listless three o'clock expression. I, I didn't engage too much in conversation. There wasn't one really to be had in that moment that I was prompted to have. But wouldn't you know it, I went on my way and then I got a phone call on Monday. You know so-and-so. I said, yeah, I just saw her yesterday. She took her life. Why did she take her life? Because she had trusted in some people and it didn't come through. She thought things were gonna work out this way and they didn't work out. And she took her life thinking there was not any value, no reason to live. I don't know who I'm talking to today. I don't know who's watching this on the other end. But I want to tell you, if you look at your life just from a temporal way like Solomon is looking here, your life will be like a bubble, like a vapor. It won't really have a lot of meaning. Chasing after fame, chasing after the things the world offers, but eventually it comes up empty. It won't measure up. And what would give Solomon the right to write this book? Well, not only would God inspire it, but we would see Solomon's qualifications for this task. Solomon had a great heritage, and his heritage qualified him. His dad is King David. David, who would slay the giant. His dad was David, who would eventually become king to follow Saul. His dad was David, the one who would be in the royal palace, the one who would write all kinds of important songs like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want that David. He is David's son, and he has all kinds of history that is excellent. We also see that he has all kinds of wisdom that is given to him. You know, every once in a while, we have an encounter with God. I was talking at the airport just a couple days ago with Dr. Eastlack, our district superintendent, and we had time to kill, so we were talking about different things, and it finally came around to our childhood experience, where we were when Christ saved us, where we were when we found faith in Jesus Christ. And he began to share his story, and it was a powerful moment how he came to life in Christ. I shared my story about how Christ had ministered to my spirit and how I had come to faith in Christ and how beautiful it was. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? It's an incredible encounter. But Solomon, early in his kingship, had an encounter with God. And God says to him, what do you want me to do for you? It's almost like a genie in a bottle moment. But this is where the divine, awesome creator says to him, is there something you'd like for me to do? Now, what would you have asked God to do for you? I don't know what you would have done, but he said, God, I need wisdom. I don't know how to do this and oversee this nation, lead these people. I need you to help me. And some of you face important decisions in your day tomorrow. I don't know what you're facing, but you've got a decision. You've got a meeting with someone. It may be a business meeting. It may be a legal meeting. 
It may be a meeting with a teacher. Maybe you have some sort of a meeting with a bully tomorrow. I don't know where you go. But in James, the little epistle in the New Testament, it says in chapter 1, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him and he will gladly tell you, for he's always ready to give bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask. He will not resent it. Ask him. What is wisdom? I can speak about wisdom and put most of you to sleep. Abraham Lincoln defined wisdom this way. When you've got an elephant by the hind legs and he's trying to run away, it's best to let him run. That's wisdom. But in that time period, Solomon had a different world. Everybody had access to the king. The commoners had access to the king. Everybody had access to the king. You and I would have had access. And there were two ladies, two ladies who had, who had been sleeping. They were prostitutes. Both had babies. One of the ladies, baby died during the night. So she went over and she grabbed the baby of the lady, the other lady, grabbed that baby and took it as her own. And the lady woke up and realized something's wrong, something's off. And they both come, came over to Solomon and said, would you help us out? Now he had asked for wisdom, right? And so he, in this moment, he needed it, right? What would you have done? They come over with this one living baby. This lady said, it's my baby. She says, no, this baby's mine. In that moment, he said this. He said, how about you cut that baby in two? Give half of that baby to this mother. Give the other half to this one. The biological mother said, no, don't cut my baby. Don't kill my baby. Solomon said, I know who the mother is, for she did not want the baby to die give the baby to the lady who did not want the baby to be cut in two. And your Bible says in the New Testament in Matthew, it says they came from all over the place to see him and to hear him as he gave wisdomatic insight. The Queen of Sheba it talks about. And then it says there is one who has come who is more wise. Who would be more wise? It's the one who gives wisdom. Who is that? It is Jesus Christ himself, more wise than this guy named Solomon. But he has wisdom as a trait and a quality. And then he has immense wealth. He had immense wealth. He made 700 million a year. Isn't that fairy tale? He's in the annals of history. 700 million a year. 100 billion, he could buy Pennsylvania. He could have bought Twitter too, but he could buy Pennsylvania. <laughs> King Solomon's fame was thrown in on top of that. And then he had cultural awareness. He built water systems. And David had gathered all of, the, all of the appliances and all of the pieces and all of the wood and the, uh, ornate, exquisite metals that would be used to build the temple. But God told David, because you killed, you're not going to be able to build this temple. I'm going to let Solomon build it. And Solomon built the temple, and it was a masterful place. Don't ever get upset because they spend too much money at the house of God on the purposes of God. You cannot outdo giving to God. And then he understood the times. He understood the times. Injustice to the poor, crooked politics. In chapter 10, he talks about incompetent leaders. Chapter 8, he talks about guilty people allowed to commit crime and more crime. Chapter 5, he talks about materialism. Chapter 7, he talks about desire for the good old days. He could have written this in any generation because it could apply even in our generation today. Yet his generation was known as the golden age. Even as our generation is known as the golden age of its own existence. First Kings 4 said Solomon wrote 3,000 wise sayings 
and Solomon wrote 1,000 songs. We just looked at the Song of Solomon, several of his songs. And he could talk about plants and large trees to bushes. He could talk about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. But he talked about life from under the sun. He focused on life under the sun, just what was going on in the world around him. And if you focus on just the world around you, you'll never get rich enough. He wasn't. You'll never be smart enough. He wasn't. You'll never have enough fame. He didn't. You'll never have enough people around you. He had tons and tons of people around him. You'll never live old enough. He lived to be an old man. You'll never have enough of the stuff that this world can give you because this world is not all that is. And if you're living just for this world alone, you're going to be sorely disappointed because this world will leave you with an empty bubble. You'll be the hamster on the wheel falling off. You'll be like those many, many scientists, philosophers, and teachers who never could answer what is the meaning in the riddle of life. Elvis Presley, a hubba hubba. <laughs> Whatever that means. Grew up in a church with a mother that was a Christian. They went to the Methodist church and she loved the Lord. Elvis knew about the Lord. Somewhere along life, he grew away from that commitment and that understanding, even as Solomon. 25 years after Elvis died, his top hits led the charts in America. 25 years after he was dead, his wife Priscilla said of Elvis, in an interview, she said he never came to terms with who he was meant to be or what his purpose in life was. He, he, he thought he was here for some reason, maybe to preach, serve, save, to care for people. The agonizing desire was always with him, but he wasn't fulfilling it. So he'd go on stage so he wouldn't have to think about it, her words. And I've heard the interviews, and you have too, of some of the people that hung around Elvis, gospel singers. And they would hang around Elvis after the concerts were over, after the crowds were gone, after people were out of the way. And what would he want to do? He would want to sing the gospel hymns. And he'd want to sing something because there was an ache and a yearning in his heart. But at age 42, he overdosed. And many of you that were alive then, you can remember just a few years back, even as I can, where you were when you learned that Elvis Presley had passed away. It was a sad occasion. A life wasted far too soon. Pointless. Never fulfilling his destiny. Some of you follow college football. I don't understand all of the theology of this person, but he said something quite interesting. Lou Holtz looked at life differently. He looked at life above the sun. And he said, if you want to be happy, go to Longhorn and eat a steak. Can I get a witness in the house? You'll be happy for an hour. If you want to be happy for a day, play golf. If you want to be happy for a week, go on a cruise. But if you want to be happy for a lifetime, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Friend, this world is not about the one who ends up with the most toys or the ones who drive the best, 
whatever. This life isn't about how many people knew you or gathered around you or worked for you. There's something more, there's something bigger, there's something greater about this. There's a purpose that God has in mind for you. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you that you and I could find forgiveness in him and that we could find new life and be born again as the scripture says and that in him we would live and move and have our being and we would have a purpose and a reason for living. It's more than a vapor. It's more than just about the things we can accrue. It's about Jesus Christ and a purpose we can have. So we too can look at life not under the sun, listen to this, but we look at life above the sun and we realize there's more to life than this life. There is an eternity and a life ahead of us where all of us will spend way more time than we spend down here. And the thing we want to do is to be able to come to grips with our eternity so we can live this life with meaning and we'll be able to go one day into the presence of God when we're finished with the purpose and the reason we have for living in this life. Can I get a witness somewhere in the house? Now, Lord Jesus, you have spoken to us today in a little different way. Our minds have been stretched to think thoughts we may not have been sitting around thinking this week. And we have looked in the mirror and realized we are just a vapor passing through. But the soul that is within us lives on forever. It'll never end. And so, Lord, we want to live this one life we get on this one big turn around the wheel. And we want it to count. We don't want to be like a hamster and just fool around and act dippy about it all. We don't want to be just like the laborer that ends up coming away and saying, that was nothing. Lord, we want our life to count. And while you give us breath, we ask you to provide salvation in our heart individually, not just on the cross, but let us know for sure that we have made our peace with you through the forgiveness of sin as we confess you as our Savior and Lord. Help us not just to look at you as God up there, but help us look at you as Jehovah, our Savior. And then I pray, Lord, that we will not lose sight of you, not any time in our life, never too old to talk about you, never too old to lean into you, never too old to learn from you. But Lord, help us to grow more and more like you until we see you in just a few minutes. In Jesus' name.